It's Thursday, March 31st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, new findings indicate that Pluto's ice volcanoes are even weirder than we previously thought. Plus, a killer parasite is wiping out an entire species of ant in Texas. But it's actually kind of a net positive. And U.S. citizens will soon be able to select an X gender marker on their passports. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Pluto may have lost its status as a full-fledged planet, but it is still very cool. And I mean that both figuratively and literally. New research has emphasized how awesome the tiny blue dwarf planet is and underscored how very cold it is, with new insights into Pluto's ice volcanoes. Now, ice volcanoes may sound like a vaguely emo, paradoxical turn of phrase, but they are indeed a real thing. As the New York Times describes them, quote, an icy lava eruption has never been witnessed, but seeing one on a world like Pluto would be nothing short of surreal. The icy lava may slowly extrude from a dome's vent or fissure as a gelid, mucilaginous mass, something comparable to silly putty, but made of one or multiple frozen chemical compounds, and largely retain its chunky shape in a low-gravity, exceedingly cold environment, end quote. And elaborating a bit more from science alert, quote, as the name indicates, rather than hot molten lava, ice volcanoes erupt with slushy water slurries of volatile compounds such as ammonia and methane. Once they emerge into frigid atmospheric conditions above ground, they freeze and build up surface monuments, much like lava can create volcanic mountains and calderas, just, well, colder, end quote. Okay, so ice volcanoes, or cryovolcanoes, are no doubt very metal, and scientists have suspected they existed on Pluto ever since NASA's New Horizons spacecraft snapped some photos of the dwarf planet during a flyby back in 2015. Ice volcanoes do exist elsewhere in the solar system. They're not unique to Pluto. Fellow dwarf planet Ceres has some, as does Saturn's moon Enceladus, and maybe even Neptune's moon Triton. But new research published on Tuesday in the journal Nature Communications suggests that Pluto's ice volcanoes are a lot more prominent than previously thought, and that their relatively more recent presence than previously thought indicates that there was also hot liquid beneath Pluto's surface in the immediate geologic past. So for the new study, the team poured over data from New Horizons, focusing on a region that contains two suspected ice volcanoes, Wright Mons, named after the Wright brothers, and Picard Mons, named after, not Captain Picard, but August Picard, a real-world Swiss physicist and balloonist. These two mounds are enormous, given the small size of their host. Pluto's diameter, at 1,480 miles, is roughly equivalent to the distance between Dallas and Philadelphia. But Wright Mons and Picard Mons are four miles high and between 20 and 62 miles across. Now, while Wright Mons and Picard Mons are typically described as potential ice volcanoes, this new research suggests that they're actually mounds produced by eruptive material. Quoting again from the Times, They're probably colonies of smaller volcanic domes, which are usually made when very gloopy lava slowly erupts and forms squat piles. It appears that many such domes grew in the same area and got squashed together, making two mountainous masses. End quote. 
And from Gizmodo, quote, Interestingly, impact craters are nowhere to be found in this area, in stark contrast to other places on Pluto. This suggests the cryovolcanic activity must have happened relatively recently, and that Pluto's internal structure retains significant amounts of residual heat. End quote. Heat? All the way on Pluto? Well, from the Times, quote, Earlier studies have suggested Pluto has a subsurface ocean, although explaining its existence is difficult. A world this small would have lost the heat from its formation long ago, and it does not contain enough radioactive heat-releasing elements in its rocky core, so any liquid below its icy outer shell should be frozen. Various heat-trapping hypotheses are also currently impossible to prove. And yet, Pluto's youthful cryovolcanic terrain bolsters the case for its own subterranean seas, while adding evidence to two theories, that ocean worlds are commonplace in the cosmos, and that scientists cannot always explain how their existences are possible. End quote. And Jeffrey Collins, a geology professor at Wheaton College who was not involved in the study, told Gizmodo via email, quote, I've seen a lot of bizarre things on the surfaces of other worlds, but right mons on Pluto is definitely one of the weirdest. And this study interprets it to be a volcano, but perhaps we need to throw out some of our Earth-based notions of what volcanoes look like when we're talking about ice volcanoes on Pluto. End quote. This is definitely one of those findings that yields a lot more questions than answers, and also makes us question the extent of our imagination in conceiving of how natural processes work beyond our own planet. Quoting Science Alert once more, It's unclear exactly what processes in the depths of Pluto might have produced such a scale of cryovolcanism. It's possible there's a deep network of fractures below the terrain, one that has since been covered up by the oozing and hardening cryomagma. The new discovery suggests that although it's frozen, Pluto may be very far from dead and inert. In fact, the tiny, distant dwarf planet may have a lot to teach us about cryovolcanism. End quote. One big takeaway from all of this, never write off Pluto. A killer parasite is sweeping across Texas, but it might actually be a good thing. And don't worry, it doesn't affect humans. The parasite seems to be infecting ants, specifically tawny crazy ants. And yes, apologies for the ableist language, but that is the species' actual name. They do have another nickname, the raspberry crazy ant, so named for exterminator Tom Raspberry, who first identified their huge increase in population back in 2002. But the crazy part of the name stands, and is apparently popular nomenclature for a whole bunch of different quick-moving, un predictable ants. But here's the thing about the tawny crazy ants. They spread in huge colonies, are super hard to kill, resisting most insecticides, and even produce formic acid as an antidote to fire ants' venom, the first known insect able to neutralize another insect's venom. And they don't just bite humans and cause annoyance with their miles-wide super colonies, they're also particularly attracted to electrical equipment a threat to native ant species, and have been known to eat animals as big as baby birds and lizards. But now, they're being wiped out by a microsporidian pathogen. Scientists have started finding bloated, tawny crazy ants filled up with the fungus-like parasite and describe the spread of it as an epidemic. 
The tawny crazy ants with their super colonies do not social distance, and the microsporidian is therefore spreading like wildfire through their populations. But what's more, they seem to be the only ant species affected by the microsporidian. So all those native species they've historically been a threat to might finally be getting a breather, and officials might be able to utilize the microsporidian as a specific biological weapon against the tawny crazy ants without affecting any other species. Quoting Wired, This microsporidian exploits the family structure of the colony. When the adults regurgitate food for the larvae, they also unknowingly dose them with the pathogen. Once the microsporidian is in the ant's body, it hijacks fat cells to turn out more spores, like a virus hijacking human cells to copy itself. Accordingly, these larvae grow into sickly adults. It causes a reduction in the lifespan of the workers and a reduction in the success of the larvae developing into adult workers, says lead author Edward Lebrun. So the growth rate goes down and the death rate goes up. And as with COVID, the lag time between transmission and the development of debilitating symptoms helps the pathogen spread through the population. As Lebrun and his colleagues describe in their new paper, this worker-to-larva transmission creates some seriously bad timing for the colony. A queen lays eggs in December, but doesn't start laying again until April. Workers have to live through this gap so they can take care of the new spring brood and sustain the population. But microsporidian infections spike in the fall, weakening those workers and decreasing their chances of survival over the winter. End quote. In addition to, or really because of, their dense interconnected colonies, the ants are at another disadvantage. They share a lot of genes. They're more genetically isolated than other species that are more diverse, and it seems like those genes they share are lacking resistance to this microsporidian. Entomologist and world-renowned ant expert Brian Fisher, who was not involved in the latest research, says it's really fascinating to watch this in real time. The sort of boom-bust cycle of an invasive species that dominates an ecosystem and then has a sudden collapse has plenty of precedent, but this is one of the first detailed studies watching it all in real time. And as for what happens if and when this microsporidian wipes out all of the tawny crazy ants along the Gulf Coast— whether naturally or through weaponizing it against them, LeBrun says native ants will bounce back, as some already have in areas where the tawny crazy ant populations have been decimated. Plus, Fisher adds, with its hosts all died off, the microsporidian will go extinct as well. So even if it did somehow affect other species, which it doesn't seem to do, it would no longer be of any concern. Absolutely mind-blowing how nature just occasionally takes care of invasive pests all on its own without us necessarily having to do anything. Starting next month, U.S. citizens will be able to choose gender-neutral X markers on their passports, with the option available for other forms of identification coming next year. This according to the U.S. Department of State in a slew of announcements from the White House marking Transgender Day of Visibility today. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says this move, which was announced last summer, comes after, quote, thoughtful consideration of the research conducted and feedback from community members, end quote, and that the X, which will represent unspecified or another gender identity on public forms, is, quote, respectful of individuals' privacy while advancing inclusion, end quote. And I will add to that point, like so many initiatives that make life more dignified for trans people, it also has benefits for other people 
people as well. You know, some intersex individuals are more affirmed by X options on forms, and some cisgender people also feel gender markers on forms like that are pointless or choose to keep that information private for any number of reasons. I mean, the history of obscuring gender through pseudonyms or other means is a huge part of the history of feminism, as women weren't allowed in certain spaces and professions or prejudged in them based on their gender. So that privacy and inclusion, once again, is not just for trans people, but in providing accommodations for the most vulnerable, we often serve everyone better. And another interesting detail with this announcement is that to select whichever gender marker on your passport, M, F, or X, does not require any supporting documentation. Previously, if you were, say, changing your passport from F to M, it required a written note from a doctor confirming a diagnosis of gender dysphoria or that certain milestones of medical transition had been achieved. Those requirements are still in place in many states simply for changing your driver's license, and since a passport often supersedes a driver's license in many cases in the U.S., for anyone who needs to or wishes to have their gender more accurately reflected on their documents, getting or updating their passport might be the easiest option at this particular moment. The Social Security Administration also announced today that it's removing the requirement of a doctor's note in order to update your gender information in your Social Security records, effective this fall. And as for other announcements that came out of the White House today, the Transportation Secretary Administration, or TSA, says that they will be updating their airport security scanners to be essentially gender neutral and will be training officers on conducting less invasive screening procedures, particularly until the new scanners are in effect later this year. This is an announcement that has been kind of buried in a lot of leads today, but broadly embraced by the trans community. The current advanced imaging technology scanners require operators to choose a male or female button based on the outward appearance of each traveler, which they don't always get right to begin with, whether that traveler is trans or not. From there, depending on which button they hit, the scanners can detect heat in areas that their scanners might then tell them are not typical of someone of the gender they selected, which leads to trans people disproportionately having to go through extra pat-down screenings, usually including disclosing their trans status in some capacity to the officers. It's all around an embarrassing mess, and I'm sure everyone, cis or trans, can agree that those pat-downs are the worst. So this seems like a step in a positive direction. Also today, several U.S. federal departments like the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Education released new resources for families and educators about gender-affirming care and other support for trans and non-binary youth. And many of these were directly to counteract states that have removed similar resources from their websites in recent months and to debunk misleading narratives about gender-affirming care currently proliferating. And all of that is being topped off by a brief speech of support from President Biden, a conversation with trans kids and their parents led by Admiral Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health and first openly trans federal official confirmed by the Senate, and a White House meeting between Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff and Jeopardy champ Amy Schneider. 
It's certainly a big day of support for trans Americans, but it's par for the course by the Biden administration. President Biden has long been a supporter of trans rights. Back in 2017, he actually wrote the foreword to now Delaware State Senator Sarah McBride's memoir. McBride had previously worked for Biden's son, Beau, on his 2010 campaign for attorney general. And then after coming out and continuing to be actively supported and affirmed by the Biden family, McBride went on to become the first openly trans transgender woman to intern at the White House and is now the highest ranking trans elected official in U.S. history. In the foreword to her fantastic and heartbreaking memoir, which I highly recommend, President Biden wrote, quote, The most important lesson my father taught me and my children is the same principle that animates courageous advocates like Sarah McBride, that all people are to be treated with dignity and respect. It's a simple proposition, but one that too often gets lost in the political noise. End quote. You can see that simple proposition reflected in the actions the Biden administration chose to prioritize today. And if you want to dive more into the political noise attempting to distract from that simple proposition, I highly recommend the podcast series The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, which takes you behind the scenes of the dark money and orchestrated campaigns fueling much of the anti-trans legislation popping up in states around the country. And if after listening you are inspired to get involved, I also recommend checking out the site Trans Week of Visibility and Action, which was started by attorney Chase Strangio and activist Raquel Willis, to mobilize across the U.S. in support of trans youth. Link to that as well as the book and podcast I mentioned are all in the show notes. Well, Blue Origin's New Shepard rocket launched earlier today on its first mission of 2022, carrying up a group of six philanthropists and scientists to the edge of space. Not included among them was Pete Davidson. The Saturday Night Live comedian was slated to join on the trip, but was unable to join at the last minute for a so far undisclosed reason. Hopefully it's nothing serious. I wouldn't blame the guy if he just got cold feet. I mean, I am terrified by the idea of going to space. But in any case, the six who did go up have safely landed again, and Blue Origin has now sent over 20 people into space. And space tourism continues marching steadily on. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.